we talk about ethically sourced food and ethically sourced ingredients and that nose to tail and paddock to plate movement but to me i've struggled with that because unless you're fully ethical and that means making sure your worker is respected and paid a correct wage and getting meal breaks when they should then your restaurant would then be unethical. This week on Dirty Linen, we are talking about representation in the hospitality industry. Who gets to have the conversations on behalf of the workers, the owners, and everybody who uh, is involved in getting food onto the table of Australian diners? Today, we are chatting to James Consiglio. He is a member organiser with United Workers Union, and I'm finding him somewhere quite warm and steamy today. Welcome to the podcast, James. Hey, Danny, how are you? Really good. Uh, tell me where you are right now. Um, I'm currently in the beautiful Whit Sundays up in far north Queensland. Right. And so as well as um, working with the union or as part of your work with the union, you're, you're a chef, aren't you? So is, t- tell us what you've gone up there to do. Yeah, so I've worked 10 years in the industry as a chef. I um, did my apprenticeship quite young um, and I've come up here just to do some yacht work, just uh, kind of live the lifestyle. Yeah, great. So you spent lockdown in Melbourne and now found your way to the north as you've been able to to travel and and seek work. Is that is that is that what's happened? Yeah. So I I was working up here um, pre COVID, and then obviously the devastation of COVID um, had a major impact in the Whit Sundays. Um, So I wasn't able to work. and then with borders closing, I wasn't able to uh, come back up, but I'm here now and, yeah. Mm. So what's it like uh, cooking on yachts? What's the scene? It's beautiful. It's really, it's a really different uh, pace to what you would get in a commercial kitchen in the middle of Melbourne. Um, you have a clientele, clientele's always different, so you're able to really kind of bespoken experience and you're able to create memories for a lot of uh different guests and that's to me that's really exciting that's what I love about uh, my job okay and do you hop from yacht to yacht or is it sort of like you're the guy on a particular yacht and people come and go from there I I work for about five different yachts um and kind of just in rotation okay so, okay, so when, when I save up and decide I want a yachting holiday in the Sundays, do I get to sort of have a chat to you and say, well, you know, we love this and, um, yeah, my, my, my husband hates oysters and but I love prawns and we get, we get to have that chat and then you sort it all out? Is that, what, is that how it works? Yeah, yeah, so we get a briefing of the client. Um, I've had clients that just want chicken tenders and uh, potato chips and... <laughs> And then I've had the other extent where clients want um, beluga caviar and that really opulent, uh, gorgeous food. Wow. It must be so interesting where you just don't know what you're going to be cooking from week to week. What, what's your sort of favourite type of client? My, my favourite kind of client is the client that I could probably, um, I see myself and my family kind of being like, they come, they've saved up for this holiday. They want to make it a beautiful experience. They want to create a memory. They're probably coming for a 50th birthday or a wedding renewal vows or those kind of moments where families can come together and 
celebrate. Um, that's that's my mm. that's my big thing. That's what I love. Yeah, that must be so nice. Then you can be part of that magical experience and creating those memories for them. Ah, well, it's it's so good to be able to chat to you about this sort of stuff because when I last spoke to you, it was um, in when you were in Melbourne in lockdown, and we were chatting on the phone, but there were these beeping machines in the background yeah. <laughs> just to, to rem- re- let let the listeners know what that um where that uh, part of the pandemic found you um so right on the start of uh, i guess our stage four lockdown i found myself in a hospital having spinal surgery um which wasn't great but it was a great time to <laughs> have it i guess and what um, had what had led you to having needing that surgery um, so it was a skiing accident that I'd done four years ago um, that I uh, had a disc that wasn't kind of aligned anymore. Um, and then obviously with the nature of our industry, I never had the time to actually stop and um, actually have the surgery. I couldn't take 12 weeks out of my life. to, uh, So I would just have quick fixes with acupuncture and dry needling and get back to work and yeah, so that it's another issue in itself, but yeah. So, James, tell me about your work with the union. How did that all come about? So, I'm a founding member of Hospo Voice, uh, going on three years now, and that came from me um, having my own uh, really bad experiences in the industry, um, and seeing that there's a need for change and myself wanting to make change for our industry and for workers that are coming through our industry. Um, okay. So so Hospo Voice recently, I guess, merged with United Workers Union. Is that the right way to describe it? Uh, so we were, I guess, like created by Un- uh, United Voice um, and then uh, 12 months ago United Voice and National uh, Workers Union merged Okay. And, you know, as you've sort of grown up and, you know, started voting and all that sort of stuff, did you consider yourself a political person? I mean, was the world of unions a world that you were familiar with or had ever seen yourself being part of? I don't think it was ever something. I grew up in a very strong CFMEU family. Um, right. Okay. Yeah. My, my father was a CFMEU member. So it was always, and coming from a Victorian, it's something we're kind of brought up with. We're a very uh, unionised state. We're very strong in our um, belief. So I I guess I never saw it for my industry in the time that is, is now or the time it took for it to change our industry so rapidly. Yeah, okay, because I guess, you know, the first time that I heard of Hospo Voice was probably, I guess, you know, early in that three-year history and you started to hear about it in terms of action around underpayments. Uh, So is that the sort of, had you experienced that from um, places that you worked? Is that, was that the sort of focus that, that took you and prompted you to be one of the founding members? Yeah, that was, that was a big part of it was the WaySafe campaign, but our initial campaign for Hospital Voice was a campaign called Respect is the Rule. And that was tackling uh, gendered violence and sexual harassment in our industry and eliminating and making, uh, getting the employer and the employees to sign a pledge and really open up that conversation. 
and for me that that's what enticed me to the union because as a apprentice chef working in the kitchens of Melbourne and as a brother with three younger sisters I would see how chefs kind of degraded um some chefs sorry degraded women and front of house workers and that's not something I wanted to be a part of and that's not something that I really felt comfortable with but I never was able I was never in a position to say anything or stand up as a voice Mm. I suppose you know the the classic thing about unions is that when people are together they're stronger and I suppose one it's hard for one person to have a voice but the more of you that are sort of aligned the easier it is to to speak up does is that how you felt definitely and it it's it's about that collective power one one person can spark an idea but it takes a team to make a change and until we until we and we, we've seen it with our members at the moment and a lot of our industry in Victoria is people are ready for the change people want to make change and this is how they're going about it so how many members do, do you have in the hospitality um, in the thousands so this year during the pandemic we launched as a national union so we're now Australia wide so that really opened up a lot of different um, workers and gave a lot of different workers from all over the country a voice and this empowerment that they wouldn't once had that I didn't once have. Mm. And what's the response been from employers? Uh, Because, I mean, I think probably the first things that I heard about Hospo Voice was from restaurateurs and, you know, I'm sure it doesn't come as a massive surprise to you if I say that it was quite... um, there was there was quite a lot of muttering and grumbling. Like people weren't really happy to hear about workers organising in this way. As much as people could say, you know, well, I guess there were lots of different conversations. Some people would be saying, "Look, we know the industry needs to change." Other people would be saying, "Look, this is just how it is." And I suppose I'm talking more about wages than I am about that sort of harassment that you're speaking about. Um, I mean, what have you? What sort of conversations have you had with employers, and what do you? what's the tone of those conversations? Is it very adversarial or is there a willingness to sort of meet at the table? Look, I, I believe that a employer is, we've had some quite, uh, I guess, strong cases and strong campaigns around George Columbaris and Neil Perry and these, for want of a better, like for a term, celebrity chefs. Um, and they're the ones that, have been ripping off workers and their workers are standing up and they're the people that we get negativity from because they are doing wrong by workers. Yet we have so many other workers and so many other employers that are so passionate about their workers knowing their rights and getting paid a fair wage that the, that that's what, uh, that's the good I see in the union. And we have a website called Fair Play, which workers can anonymous, anonymously uh, voice their their working conditions and voice that they're not being paid right or they're being paid at a minimum wage um, and exploited, which really shouldn't happen in 2020. Yeah. So have you, have you left 
workplaces because the um, employers sort of really weren't coming to the table? Look, I've I've left workplaces because I've been underpaid. I've been underpaid, and they're not willing to. They're so blatant about not acknowledging. It. So one of the places I was working at, I was underpaid in excess of $22,000. Um, and there was points where HR were so adamant that they were going to get away with it, that the only option for me was to go to Fair Work and to go through that process of fighting for... Th- for I was working in excess of 70 hours a week and getting paid for 50, 40. Um, So for me, for my own, to kind of, for my own, uh, I deserve it. I work for it. They, (laughs) Mm. yeah. And you didn't feel you were in a position to say, oh, look, I'm going home now because I'm only being paid for these hours. It was more that, was it that there was such a strong culture of doing those hours and then you sort of had to work the payout later, or you know what, what happened. I think there's a few there's a few issues with around wage theft, um, and for me personally, it was that I I guess I didn't notice it until I kind of stopped and had a look and saw my pay slips um, when I was actually receiving them. I wasn't receiving pay slips at the time, um, and that's a major a major flaw in our industry is that some workers don't receive pay slips, but also the casualization and the transient nature of our industry means that workers don't feel uh, don't feel like they can have an opinion because the what the employer will do will just go and um, fire them, and they can because of because of how uh, not oh, oh I hate the word irreplaceable. Um, and it's not, it's, it's more, there's no laws until, until we campaigned and fought for wage theft in Victoria and Queensland now, um, there was nothing to protect a worker. There was no accountability from the employee that they had to keep that worker on. And a lot of workers got fired because they spoke up and fought for their rights. Mm. You'd have to imagine that at the moment when you know it it's um an employee's market restaurants are desperate for chefs at the moment and and front of house workers do you think that that changes the landscape i've i've had conversations with a lot of um a lot of really good employers and a lot of people in the industry in victoria and also in sydney and the conversation and how workers are demanding that they get signed onto part-time and get signed and have a contract and have secure work. Um, for me, as a union member and someone who's an advocate for change, that is a really good thing that workers are demanding this off their own. But it it will be... It's going to be tough and there won't be a quick fix to it. I think um, employers need to really work with their workers and really kind of um, get systems in place where they can 
put workers onto secure and tight contracts because then if we have another lockdown or we have another case of a pandemic and our industry closes again, then these workers are going to be covered and they're going to be, they're not going to have to go to um, soup kitchens for food and they're not going to have to like give up so much just to live, which I think, and I know that's something you know very well is how dev- how devastating the heartbreak was of um, seeing these workers who put food on tables for um for so many people then had to go and be- beg and like um I don't sorry I'm getting quite emotional just reach out for support when there's no need for that in 2020 they should be in secure work they should have been protected by our government and by our our um, employers. Well, I, yeah, look, I guess there's a couple of things that s- sort of covered by what you're talking about. I mean, there's the issues with the temporary visa holders and I know that your union did a lot of um, work to support those people and, yeah, they were the people that I was, you know, trying to shine a light on and assist as well. I think that even if they, if those people were on um permanent part-time or full-time employment that that still wouldn't have helped with the way that uh, JobKeeper and JobSeeker were structured. Um, but but the way that JobKeeper particularly was structured meant that people who'd been employed as a casual for less than a year weren't covered, whereas, um, yeah, permanent part-time and full-time workers, if they'd been employed at the beginning of March, they were um, able to be assisted. So I guess what you're saying is that if workers now have the confidence to not just take on a casual position but to ask to be employed um, with a permanent position, that they're more likely to be covered by any future government schemes that come in if we are as, so unfortunate as to go through another lockdown. But I suppose it's, it's like, you know, it could be any scenario that comes in, isn't it? There are there are vastly more protections and, and, and well, diff, different conditions um, and for some people it's a better condition, better conditions if they are employed in a part-time or full-time position. I mean, it's it's definitely a, a space that, you know, there's a lot of discussion around. I mean, the Victorian government's proposed this scheme whereby um, workers in those frontline industries, including hospitality, who are casual, are um, there's, there's a pilot scheme to give those people sick leave and carers leave. Is, is that something that was on your radar or did that sort of, um, you know, spring out from you know from around the side just through just through victorian government and perhaps other unions um agitating for it look i think it's something that the union movement has always pushed for and has always um asked the government to put in place um we're very lucky in victoria that we've got a amazing um government that do have workers um intentions and the best intentions for workers at the forefront was this um, pilot scheme for casual workers something that, yeah, you had been had been fighting for or it was on your radar? Definitely, definitely. We've been for, uh, fighting for uh, secure work and secure jobs um, for since the start. And that's something we've found. We've, we've done a lot of surveying of our members and the wider hospitality industry and we came up with four key points in our industry that we wanted to make change. Um, and one of those is having secure work. So 
it will it will be something that we will continue to fight for and continue to um collectivize and work towards for for a nation for australia and every worker in australia so secure work is one of the the four pillars um that you're fighting for what are the other three um so we've got safe and respectful workplaces which is creating firstly a obviously what it says a safe ohs regulated um industry and also having that respect that i guess a lot of our industry i um is subject to abuse and not just from employers but also from customers and uh guests that dine in so making sure that workers feel they're respected we've got another one which is tackling wage theft and the last one is migrant workers and supporting them in every way we can Mm. well there's a study that recently came out showing that uh job ads in languages other than English uh, routinely were advertised for under the award. So do you have a, a sort of outreach to culturally, linguistically diverse communities to, to sort of try to get in and explain to people what their rights are? Definitely. Um, I, I myself speak eight languages, so I'm happy to speak to any member that uh, needs representation in a language. Um, and we work very closely with uh, Trades Hall who have a, I guess, a um, team specifically designed to feed into those um, communities. James, I'm sorry. I just have to say, like, did you say you speak eight languages? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. What, what are they and how is this possible? Um, I just had a knack for them. Uh, I speak Japanese, Chinese. Uh, English, Maltese, Arabic, Italian, uh, French, and there's a couple of others. Sign language is a major one that I find really helpful, but it's, yeah. Wow, that is amazing. So have you just learnt those off your own back or have you been a secret linguistic student um, all all the way along? (laughs) Um, I've learnt them off my back, but I've also learnt them off a necessity to communicate with people in my kitchen um, and workers that obviously had um, dishes and uh, there's all different kind of cultures that come through our industry and I really want to be able to connect with them to create a really open community uh, communication and feel comfortable. Like I, I know for myself and when I go to another country, um being able to speak English is a is a bonus, but being able to um, communicate and respect that person in their language is, to me, a beautiful thing. Yeah, absolutely. It's in, it's incredible. Wow. So yeah, sorry, I, I think I cut you off, but I really just uh, am really amazed and impressed by by that. And it is such an international industry. Um, so it's uh, yeah, I'm sure it makes a massive difference to be able to communicate with people in their in their own language. Um, it's interesting, you know, like uh, you say you've, you've got, you know, thousands of members and it's growing all the time. It's Australia is less unionised now than it, you know, probably has been for the last century. What do you think it is that means that, um, that unions are expanding in hospitality, whereas in, in many industries they're declining? 
Um, for us, for our industry, I guess it is that workers have had enough. We don't, we work in a hard enough industry as it is where we don't need to be going home and worrying about if we're being paid the correct wage or if our boss is ripping us off or um, workers going home feeling intimidated because a customer has touched them or made a slur to them. So that empowerment and that kind of fight that we have as workers and that kind of drive we have as hospitality workers, um, I guess, is a really good thing for our union movement. Um, but also we have our, our, I guess our model of Hospo Voice is we, it's $9.99 a month and we've been able to create a digital union that redefine the union. We've, we've been the uh, union that has been able to adapt to this pandemic quite quickly because it's what we've been doing for three years. We've been having Zoom calls. We've been having uh, online tools to empower our workers. And with that, uh, this year, we've launched an app called Mobilize, which is a really cool app where workers can go on and check their pay rates and they can ask. We've got a integrated AI kind of bot where workers can find out about their rights. They might be standing in the cool room or on a milk crate in the laneway or, and they can ask this bot, how much should I be paid? What are my rights around paid sick leave? And being able to uh, unionize and create a model that fits for our industry is really revolutionary in our movement. Mm. Yeah. So it's, I guess it's easy, easier to build something for the digital space when it's when it's new, and I guess there's a lot of young people that are in it as well. It doesn't have that sort of rusted on vibe of perhaps the CFMEU or some of those more traditional unions. Although there still have been, you know, some I guess traditional actions like marches and um, and protests, that sort of thing. So I suppose I guess that's a more traditional type of activism I guess you know I think a lot of some restaurateurs have this sense that hospo voice is against restaurants that it's um that their restaurants just are a certain way and hospo voice is just sort of undermining the way that things are to the detriment of the industry what what would you say to people expressing that view that they're completely wrong hospo voice is member-led it's led by members that work in the industry that work for these employers that if they were doing right by their worker then I guess they wouldn't be scared they wouldn't be scared that we'll turn up with a megaphone because we're not afraid of doing that um and we've had some really really good actions where it's gotten general uh, the general public to really question we talk about ethically sourced food and ethically sourced um, ingredients and that nose to tail and paddock to plate movement but to me I've struggled with that because unless you're fully ethical and that means making sure your worker is 
respected and paid a correct wage and getting meal breaks when they should, then that's your restaurant would then be unethical um, if, if your work is not getting that. So to me, those restaurateurs that are worried obviously have a reason to be worried because they're not doing right by their workers. And what would you say to people um, who say, oh, the award's outdated, it's too complicated, people, sh- you know, the rates are wrong, like it's ridiculous. What would you say, what would you say to, to those people? Look, myself as a worker, I've got, I've, I've discovered the award a lot easier to navigate nowadays because I've had time to stop and look at it. And as a worker, it is hard for us, but restaurateurs pay money and pay a wage to HRs and accountants and people who should know how to look up an award or MYOB, I believe, has the award already written into it. So there is really no excuse for a, for a um, employer to be ripping off workers if, if they, unless they set out to do that. And for me personally, that means they cut my hours. They docked my pay slip from 70 hours to 50. They made manual changes. So they set out from the start to uh, exploit me. Mm. So what about um, the these, I guess, old school chefs who are just like, well, I came up doing 70 hours and that's just how it is and I don't regret a second of it because I learned a lot and it's just how it was. What What's your response to that? My, my personal response as someone who trained under those kinds of chefs is I, I don't do it because it's an easy job. <laughs> I, I I would hate it if it was boring and mundane and it was easy, but there's got to be give and take. We have to have a work-life balance. We can't be doing 70-hour weeks and not having meal breaks and not having um, correct wages paid to us. We need to have, I guess, solid guidelines in our industry nowadays around what is acceptable for a chef to work. And, and I think younger chefs, possibly not my generation, but maybe the generation under me, uh, are seeing that. And there is that kind of change from the old, like, grumpy old chef from the 70s that you would see at a training school with the big white hat um, to, like, chefs now that um, come in and actually care about their workers. And to me, that to me, that... Oh, sorry. Like that just makes a that just makes a better work environment and a better condition. You're going to get more out of your workers if they're well rested and uh, respected, and they want to be there. Um, and I don't think just wanting to be a chef or just wanting to work in hospitality is enough anymore. So you've spoken very favourably about the Victorian government and their approach to workers. Um, That's a Labor government and federally we've got a Liberal government who perhaps has a bit of a different slant on industrial relations. Uh, There are some proposed IR law changes that will um, remove the better off overall test in some circumstances, which means that employees 
are able to make a deal with an employer that is actually worse for them. Um, and there's also a provision in which uh, some workers can be asked to work extra hours without penalty rates. Is this the next battle for United Workers? It's the next battle for all all unions. Um, it, these, uh, uh, I guess, conditions that the Liberal government are putting onto us and the Scott Morrison government are putting onto us as workers is not fair and it's not, it's not, I guess it's also been uh, a little bit misinformed on how a worker is going to be exploited. There's very, they've come out and said, this will be good for every worker when it's not, it's not going to be. Um, Can you ever imagine yourself being an employer one day, like owning a business? Definitely, definitely. And I can't wait for that day. I, I've i looked throughout this year I, um, at opening my own business. <laughs> um, I was going to do it in March and I'm somewhat thankful I didn't. Um, <laughs> you might have judged a bullet there. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit. Um, but I, I would love to and I would love to create a restaurant and a, I guess, product that people want to come to because they know that they're they're um, going to get really lovely food and really lovely surfers and also that their workers want to be part of that um, environment and want to be there. Mm. Yeah, right. So do you anticipate that you'll need to charge higher prices than some businesses do simply because you want to have that, I guess, that triple bottom line sort of approach to the business? No. God, no. I don't. uh, No, I don't. I think. Okay. I think um, that it, it, it could be tough for, for businesses, but it doesn't, that's not a justifiable reason to exploit workers. Um, you know, these, these uh, chefs that we've gone after have millions and millions of dollars and a lot of employers um, in that kind of exploitation realm have the fancy Rolexes and have the cars, but to me that just doesn't, that's not what, I don't want to make money from the industry. I want to be a part of that industry and be a part of change. Do you see a positive future for the industry? Definitely, definitely. And I think as Hospital Voices, a union continues to grow and evolve and um, we continue to have stronger or building stronger presences in the East Coast and West Coast, that the industry and the conversation will change. We've seen over the three years the conversation changing in a Facebook group called the Melbourne Bartender Exchange, where three years ago someone would advertise for a bartender and that would be oh, $14.50 an hour cash in hand. Yet now we get workers that are saying award rates um, and these are all your conditions and they're good conditions. And we've seen that conversation from 
change from us promoting and holding bosses and employers accountable, but also workers wanting to stand up and create an industry that they want to be a part of. And Yeah, oh, that must be, yeah, I guess really satisfying to see that change occur. It's really, it's really um, empowering. It's really, it, it goes to show that workers want to change, I want to change the industry. Because they want to be part of it. Because, they, yeah, they want to be part of it. And that employers also want to be a part of it. Um, yeah. Mm. All right, James. Well, it's yeah, so interesting to get your perspective um, yeah, and to have the opportunity to learn more about how you started doing what you're doing and, and where you think it's going. But what I would love to find out is if you know where you're going on your first yacht trip in this new stint in the Whitsundays. I'm actually about to, in about 15 minutes, jump on a yacht across to Hamilton Island. And then from there, I'll be going to the Outer Reef in the Great Barrier Reef for three days, <laughs> which will be beautiful. Amazing. And do you know yeah. what kind of clients you've got? Like what kind of food they want? I do. I've got a really lovely um, family from Sydney. They are they're just hilarious. One of the, the little girl, she's obsessed with um, a TV show called Bluey. And I, I personally am obsessed with Bluey. Um, <laughs> how can you not be? <laughs> um, and so she cute, wants, yeah. Yeah, yeah. She wants a Bluey cupcake. So I'm going to do a whole uh, menu for her. And I love that fun and that creativity of being able to bespoke and really be in that for them <laughs> so I can't wait yeah um great yeah. well we, we better let you go so you can so you can hop on the yacht we don't want uh the little girl to miss out on her bluey banquet um but yeah thanks James it's really really great to have you on dirty linen and um yeah have have good have a good time out there on the water thank you thanks for having me Danny This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about. We spend a week thrashing around each issue, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This is a Deep in the Weeds production.